The church exists largely for people that aren't there yet. We should be able to improve the quality of living for people in our town that never even come to our church. Uh, at some point, we can imagine our civic officials saying, well, I don't really understand it all, but there's this church that played a part in it. Hello, and thanks for jumping into this week's episode on the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. It's Jaden here. Today, we have the joy of sharing our conversation with Nathan Westlake. Nathan is the lead pastor of Prairie Alliance Church in Portage La Prairie, a town of under 15,000 people in southern Manitoba. And Prairie Alliance has a number of other sites in the province of Manitoba that Nathan oversees in places like Nipawa, Dauphin, and Dryden, all of which are towns under the population of 10,000. And in this interview, you'll hear Nathan's vision for these towns and the people living in them. It's a vision that started with four prayers that Nathan and the team at Prairie Alliance began praying a number of years ago. And really, this is one of the main reasons why we wanted to have Nathan on here to share. These prayers and the vision formed from them are a stunning reflection of Jesus' heart and the way in which his kingdom comes. Within that vision, you'll hear Jason and Nathan discuss Nathan's deep desire to see Indigenous reconciliation in and beyond his town, what it means for a church to exist for a place and to represent a place, how Prairie Alliance is serving fly-in communities in Manitoba. These are communities that are only accessible by plane or by ice roads in the winter. You'll also hear the story behind Nathan and the team becoming part owners of a plane, Honestly, this might be one of the only stories about a pastor having a plane that won't hit you a little bit funny. We loved being able to chat with Nathan. He's honest, he's full of hope, and he's convicted to take Jesus' words seriously. We hope that you find this conversation inspiring. Our team definitely did. Now, before we jump into it, we're going to have our friends at Compassion Canada share about how you and your church can respond to some deeply important issues in our world today. And then at the very end of this episode, we'll hear a bit more from the Compassion team on the meaningful work they're doing around the globe right now to alleviate poverty in the lives of children. For now, here's our friend Becca, then we'll go right into Jason's conversation with Nathan. Today, our world is facing an unprecedented global food crisis. The numbers are staggering. With nearly 10% of the world's population, 828 million people being affected by hunger last year, that's 46 million more people than just a year earlier. It can be hard to imagine even making a dent in figures like that. But here's the good news. Compassion's local church partners are on the front lines and they are responding. And there are simple and tangible ways that you and your church can partner to answer hunger with hope. This year, you can give gifts of compassion that specifically target meeting the critical needs brought on by this food crisis. To give, we invite you and your church to visit compassion.ca slash shop. That's compassion.ca slash shop. Well, Nathan Westlake, it is so good to have this time together. I want you just to start by giving us a window into your world, family, church, work, life, hobbies. Tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, I have a wife of 23 years. I have a biological daughter that is 21, studying at the University of Winnipeg. And I have a foster son who is 19, and he's learning to be a pilot wow. at the community college. And then my next child is my biological son, Soren. He is a mountain biker, currently ranked 10th in Canada, actually. For real? 
which makes him the uh, fastest kid on the prairies <laughs> by a long shot. Yeah, where does so, he find the mountains? No, that's, uh, we don't that's not fair. That wasn't a good. That wasn't a good joke. I regret that. That's a bad prairie joke. We have things we call mountains, and we ride bikes on them. Uh, I love but it. He, he's gotten pretty good. And then my youngest is my foster son Troy, and he's really into basketball. He's actually on the North American Indigenous Games team. He's all practicing for that. So wow, busy. wow, that's a full house then. Yeah. So that's a family. Uh, myself, I enjoy riding my mountain bike too. It's a it's Sweet. a mixed thing because my son's gotten so much faster than me in the last couple of years, but I can, my ego can handle it. Oh, I love that. Can you tell us a bit about the journey, if you're comfortable with, um, into foster care? Yeah. Um, our church runs a school, a K to 12 school that uh, is in, different from many Christian schools in that the parents don't have to sign a statement of faith. So probably about half of our students don't come from homes that have any kind of real connection to a church or a faith background. And one of the cool opportunities that that lets us have is that our school is about one-third Indigenous, which is fantastic because one of the things our church is longing for is that kind of community representation mm. in our church. The The town that we're situated in is, is one-third Indigenous. Okay. So our school represents the makeup of our town, seems to be kind of a, a kingdom thing. And yeah. uh, I started hanging around with these, these kids in high school from local reserves at lunch on Wednesdays. Um, and uh, there was this one kid, well, there were several kids that were from pretty bad, bad places. But this one kid, he was really intermittent, bruises, intermittent in attendance, bruises on his, his body. And uh, just, I said to his uncle, who was a friend of mine, if, if he ever needs a place to stay for a few days, we'll, hmm. we'll uh, be willing to do that. And the time come, came, his, uh, his home burned down at Thanksgiving in a really, um, uh, your home burning in any situation is a bad thing. This one is particularly painful. And so I got a call from his uncle saying, uh, can you take him for a few days? And I was like, absolutely. And then his uncle said, and he has a younger brother. Um, would you take him as well? Hmm. And it was one of the clearest moments of prayer I've ever had with the Lord. I said, God, do you want us to take the bo little boy as well? And I really felt Jesus say, if you have to ask, you don't know me very well. <laughs> and I thought, okay, Lord, I do want to know you really well, well enough to just have my reflexes respond in ways that I don't actually have to ask you rhetorical mm -hmm. questions. And so that was four years ago. And it has been the single most powerful piece of blessing in my life to wow. uh, be able to have those boys in our home. Uh, I really appreciate you sharing that with us. You gave us a little um, window into your city. Tell us a bit more about where you live and and then how your church has been a part of that community for some time. I know that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm in Portage La Prairie, Manitoba. And I would actually encourage you to Google it if you're, if you are so inclined, because uh, you'll find it's on all the wrong lists. Um, mm. Third in violent crime in Canada, really high in childhood poverty and, uh, childhood illiteracy, that kind of thing. And actually, many of the communities that the Lord is highlighting for us to plant churches in are on similar lists. So we revel uh, in those opportunities and that we're being trusted to, to bring Jesus to some of the harshest mm. places in Canada uh, to, to go to. Our town's about 13,000 people. The church, though, has grown over the last 20 years to, I mean, it's hard to know in COVID what you actually are attending. Yeah, it's, it's somewhere tough. between somewhere between 800 and 500 people. Mm, so, yeah, exactly. So it's, so it's interesting though, with 13,000 people in the town, 
Yeah. And it, and it really is. This isn't like a suburb. You got to go right. an hour in any direction to get to a larger place. So that's a lot of yeast in a relatively small loaf. And mm-hmm. it's really changed how we think about what a church ought to do mm-hmm. in a town and be able to. We should be able to improve the quality of living for people in our town that never even come to our church because this much yeast should just bring transformation. So that's yeah. that's part of our town and uh, yeah. what we're wanting to do in other ones. And then I, you might've mentioned it, but tell me like, what's what's kind of the plot points of the history of the church? Like when was it planted and when did you find yourself connecting in and how many pastors along the way, that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's been here probably for about 60 years and it's actually the church I grew up in. So that would be where I was connected with it. Wow. And, uh, growing up in a church that was very much oriented in the seeker sensitive movement and let's say all the best parts of it mm-hmm. from my perspective as a kid and even as a grown person i don't have a lot of cynicism towards that because i saw the heart of it and how it engaged people to remember that the church exists largely for people that aren't there yet mm. and uh the church in north america i think had forgotten that so whatever the seeker movement might have morphed into it it was born out of that heart and that captivated me as a teenager here Mm-hmm. So much so that I wanted to be a part of it um, in this church and other churches. And I felt called to ministry largely from growing up in a church where I saw such amazing life transformation happen for people that had never gone to church. And then in their adult lives, they started coming and uh, their family trees started to change. Mm-hmm. So I pursued an opportunity to go down to plant a church in Austin, Texas. This is kind of an intriguing story, little prairie boy to Austin, Texas. But through our Willow Creek connections in this church, I met a guy named John Burke, who uh, started a church in Austin, Texas called Gateway, however many years ago. So John since got written books on heaven and, and no perfect people allowed, that kind of thing. And uh, that seemed like the trajectory for me. I was going to go down there, work with John for a couple of years, and then come back to maybe Minneapolis or a large city in Canada and plant the coolest church near a university that you could ever imagine. Hmm. But uh, the funding fell apart for me largely because my home church leadership didn't want to support it. So it was very heartbreaking for me. The, the narrative in my head was, I'm a good kid, mentored and inspired in this church. And the pastors that I know um, and the board that loves me and my parents has said, no, we're not wanting to be a part of this. Hmm. And so maybe there were some, some things that could have happened differently. But I remember decisively hearing from the senior pastor at the time saying, the main reason that we aren't supporting it, Nathan, is the kingdom of God is no place for you to write out your personal ambitions on. So he he smelled something in me that was off, hmm. and uh, yeah, it was, it was it was heartbreaking. It made me not want to be a pastor, and so right. I uh, decided to get into being a professor. Hmm. Went to Regent College, and uh, that was the academic track was what I was planning to go on. Obviously, that didn't work out. Wow, how have you um? You've done a lot of work to obviously revisit that conversation mm-hmm. and what that represents. Yeah. When you when you even say those words now, you know, you know, the kingdom of God is no place to write out your own ambitions or I might not be quoting you exactly right. How do you reflect back on who you were? And like mm-hmm. I think the sad thing we all have to face is even as we grow, there's still like we're oh, yeah. transformed, but we're transforming. Like I might not be as like you know, addicted to people's approval as I was as a teenager or in my twenties, but it, that part of Jay is still living and active. And just curious how you've, 
you've obviously found the courage before God and the permission to go forward. But how have you worked out just your own wrestling with that tension? Yeah, well, what a good question. I, I think the danger is you can you can get so subtle at it that nobody can call you out on it like that right. guy did with me. Right. So, so then it takes the form of I'm here talking to Jason and I want to appear humble enough and not about myself enough so that people will A, be blessed, but they'll also kind of think high, highly of me. And then they'll- What an they'll amazing make, and authentic guy. Yeah, exactly. You know? and then, but then I'm going, okay, but I'm aware I'm doing that. I'm, uh, I mean, the, eventually you can throw your hands up in the air and be like, the whole thing is still very compromised. Mm-hmm. Um, but what has helped me is that uh, to understand Jesus sees right to the bottom of me, mm. right to the very bottom. And in his grace still thinks I can use that kid. Mm. and I mean that's just held me in the midst of times when you can get dizzy with introspection yeah and paralyzed with it because you really do want your motivations to be pure but in the moment you know something shifts so that's that's usually where I go and and then uh out of that conversation that that sort of conversation gratitude with the Lord thank you that you see right to the bottom of me and you're still using me there's a, there's a purification that even happens in that process. There's almost like a, a laying yourself bare before the Lord mm. and anybody that comes with it that, that uh, pur- purifies your intentions, I think. Mm. Thanks for sharing that. Take us back into the story. And so you have this desire for church planting, that desire changes, you go to Regent, you're pursuing an academic. By the way, yeah. I didn't know you spent time in Vancouver. It's not bad, yeah. right? Yeah, no, it was good. I mean, most of it I spent in the basement talking to my fiance on the phone, watching Canucks games. I, when, every time I go back to Vancouver, I'm like, what terrible timing. <laughs> I wish I hadn't fallen in love with somebody two provinces ago. I could have enjoyed what yeah. this place yeah. So you're at Regent studying and then, yeah, take us back in. Yeah, and then uh, and then I'll get married. I've got one year left at Regent. We get married. We get uh, pregnant ahead of schedule. Um so we're first year of marriage. We we get pregnant with this little girl, Acacia, and I realize I'm ill-equipped <laughs> to be a father uh, this far from my family back in Manitoba. Um, and the only doors that had opened for me academically for PhD work were University of Chicago and University of Otago. And I mean that sounds so impressive that they would have allowed me in. I still would have probably had to pay full tuition. So it's not exactly uh, you know a, a paved road yet, but. Uh, I figure it's good to be close to my family when we have this little girl. So we moved back to Winnipeg and I was a youth pastor. That's what you do when you have a master's from yeah, region. Exactly. <laughs> That's how you pay it off, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So whatever, you know, our denominations district minimum salary was suggested at that time. They put me about $4,000 a year, less than that. And, and uh, I'm, I'm sitting there in this room of kids that wish I wasn't there. Uh, junior high kids that wish I wasn't there because they love the former youth pastor. Mm. And I'm a far cry from hanging out at the University of Chicago with, you know, those the, that crew um, stacking chairs, feeling ever so sorry for myself. And uh, the Lord really used that year to, to knock me uh, around a bit in mm. a lot of ways, really humbled me. But it was over the course of those two years that I realized I'm pretty good at parts of being a pastor and I really like it. Hmm. And uh, maybe I'm not actually just going to have this ministry be a placeholder a couple of years to get our marriage set and our family set and then go do PhD work. Maybe I'm 
Maybe I'm supposed to do this. And then in my home church, about 45 minutes down the road, the one I grew up in, the one that had not supported what I was hoping to do in, in Texas, they needed a teaching pastor. So that's back to Prairie Alliance Church where I grew up and I've been here ever since. Wow. Wow. And then when did you step into the lead role? That was about 12 years ago. Okay, cool. And one interesting part of your story that's really compelling for me is that, and you'll have to explain it, but how, how you began as a team to express the vision of your church was centered around particular prayers, like four prayers. Yeah. And I just love this framing and this approach to articulating vision and partnering the articulation of the vision with an actual action, like a prayer. Can you take some time just to walk us through that? Because I know that those yeah. actually speak to some of the things that you're living in today Absolutely. are fruit of that articulated vision and those prayers. Mm -hmm. It was born out of my lack of an attention span, really. So <laughs> some pastors have a problem with their board or their church is like, what's our vision? What's our vision? Well, I could come up with a different vision on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and, and it all kind of works. But then you lose sight of it because um, something new and more exciting comes along. You read a book or you go to a conference or somebody pokes around a bit. So, so our board and myself really felt like we need something that can outlive us, hmm. outlive Nathan's scattered attention, outlive the, 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 um, you know, the cultural milieu of the day, something that God actually wants us to be a part of that will never change for this church. So there's basic church stuff you do. Of course, all churches should do it. This one, this present, like what is specifically for us to always hang on to and never let go? It's a pretty big, pretty big prayer. And we took about a year and a half as a board. We meet twice a month, once a business, business meeting, one is a just kind of hang out and pray meeting. And that second one was where we focused on these and I actually just went back to my journal from 2014, 2015 uh, for different reasons, but I didn't realize that was when we were tracking these four prayers and, and mm. when they were being refined in prayer. And to see them morph through that year and a half actually was pretty cool. Wow. Over that time, um, they congealed, let's say, as these, these four, four prayers. They are that our churches should mirror the demographic of the community that we're in. So if our community is one-third Indigenous people, then on a Sunday morning when our worship pastor is looking out of the congregation, he should see one-third Indigenous people. It should not be a rich, middle-class, white church. It's, uh, and this is largely just because when the kingdom comes in its fullness, everybody's going to be coming in from all the four corners with all their beautiful culture to inform how we worship. Yeah. So in our campus in Nipawa, about an hour up the road, that uh, little rural town in the middle of Manitoba is about one-third Filipino. So that's, that's kind of the demographic prayer there. So first prayer, our church should mirror the demographic of the community. The second prayer was that we should be places known for their one-touch healing. This one was really intriguing because it makes it sound like a rabidly charismatic church, which we really weren't. Um, that's a whole another story of how we got there. Um, I've always kind of been the designated driver for the charismatic party, <laughs> but but the uh, that's not my line, by the way. If you think it's good, it belongs. To, I got it from somewhere. It's but, a good uh, line. I like yeah, that. I'm going to yeah. use it too. Whoever said that, we can attribute it to somebody. Um, so obviously, healing happens in all sorts of ways: emotional, spiritual, physical, that kind of thing. But our heart was that at least sometimes. And enough times that it could be distinctive. Somebody comes into the environment here 
and they leave so markedly different, carrying mm -hmm. less, walking straighter, not having a sore back, heal from trauma, whatever that might be, so that we might be these centers for one-touch healing. The next one is rural multi-site. God has blessed us to be in a small town with a vibrant church that's bringing life here. Uh, we feel like we know what we're doing there. Let's go to some of these other places that are struggling to have vibrant churches. Our model really is to look for the town that has the Walmart, basically. Um, they've done all our demographic studies for us. If we want to get pragmatic, <laughs> they know what the broader service area is, that kind of thing. If you've got a movie theater and a Walmart and you're in rural Ontario or Manitoba, you're probably on our radar. And then the last one is award-winning towns. Mm. A mark of our success as a church, of our faithfulness, um, is that our towns will start to have reputations mm. and begin to get national recognition for what's happening in them. And when that recognition comes, uh, at some point, we can imagine our civic officials saying, well, I don't really understand it all, but there's this church that mm. you know, played a part in it. So, I love yeah, that. Those are the four prayers. I think what stands out to me hearing them is they're radically audacious, hmm. like they're audacious prayers, but I sense how they organize your emphasis. Yeah. Like some things are so audacious and out there that there's, it doesn't inform the activity today, if that makes sense. Yeah. But there's no, something, yeah. something really special about that, that it, it's really audacious, like award-winning town. Yeah. What that means is like, and I don't want to put any words in your mouth. It's like, this is a vision of like every vocation, every part of the city being a better place to live for all. And like that actually motivates day of, week of, month of activity, even though the vision is so audacious, you know? And yeah. um, help us understand how those articulating that vision began to actually inform the activities of your church. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I forget is that there was a considerable amount of processing I say processing because it's kinder than pushback <laughs> from, from people in our congregation. And it was intriguing to know where the pushback came from. It was largely because of the, um, the specificity of it. So they're audacious, but they're still specific. So yeah. you can be a church where you want to have healing, but you add that one touch and it becomes controversial. Mm. You're a church that wants to represent your community. You add the one-third Indigenous and it becomes a, a little more sticky. But it is some of that specificity that, that gives it the teeth that either causes somebody to be inspired by it because it actually is specific or else to push back against it. But to your question, we just started budgeting around those, to be honest. It was a real pragmatic thing. Like, if this is what we're going to do, then then why are we doing this activity? Does it lead to that? Um if we want to be award-winning, then then it is worth us putting some money towards a community concert hmm. versus uh, you know something more in-house. Then we uh, did sermon series on it, and they were born in prayer, so we continued to pray them into our church. Our church pretty frequently does 24-7 prayer weeks, even occasionally maybe a, an uninterrupted month of prayer. And if there was people that had trouble embracing those prayers um, where they became people that started to love them it was as they prayed them hmm. so there's just a there's a beautiful but still very pragmatic point there that uh, when you ask somebody to just bring something before the lord in prayer he has a way of validating it or yeah. or refining it that you could go blue in the face at a microphone trying to convince people of and i think that's what we've seen here hmm. 
I love that. It reminds me of, um, you know, if you want want a heart for people far from God, start praying for them mm-hmm. and, and buying them things. Because <laughs> yeah, that's where you, part where you put your money, like yeah. buy them lunch or whatever. It's like yeah. where you, what you pray for and what you invest in, usually your heart will follow. I think that's, Absolutely. yeah, that's, that's beautiful, man. I really appreciate you sharing that. That was impactful for me to hear. Um, I've heard like a rumor of a plane. Mm-hmm. And usually when a church has a plane, it's not a good rumor, but this one's a great rumor. Can yeah. you tell me, is this true that you guys have a plane and tell me about what you're doing with this plane? We, uh, we do have a plane. We're one third owners of a very, very impressive 1974 uh, Piper Navajo Chieftain eight-seater plane. I say Come that on. slightly tongue-in-cheek, but uh, yeah, that's, that's quite beautiful. That comes out of our one third indigenous prayer and my own journey with having these guys in my home. There's a unique anointing and call personally that I feel that that uh, I think this is often the case uh, plays out in the our body here. But if I had to choose one of our four prayers is the one that God has for me. It's the it's the reconciliation piece. Hmm. I experience the Holy Spirit most powerfully and acutely when I'm hanging around with Indigenous people. Um, it floors me every time because I'm not much of a emotive experiential person but in about 10 seconds um in the right context it just hits me like a holy spirit hurricane Mm. i started to pay attention to that with these kids in our high school it's like what happens to me when i'm around them why is this becoming my priority i've got an organization to lead and i'm taking two hours to have sandwiches with this 14 year old kid trying to work through his I guess they don't do pre-cal, but like his, his algebra or whatever it is a 14-year-old's doing. So God started to to break my heart for reconciliation and repair work with Indigenous people. And it continued to build here in, in Portage, but, but really it was a building just of frustration. Like, how can you care so much about something and not have these outlets? Like, I've been talking about our church being about this, and there's been no no breakthrough. The plane came to be out of some of that frustration, because there was a moment when I was flying home from Thunder Bay to Winnipeg, and I looked north, and there is about 100 fly-in communities in between Winnipeg and Thunder Bay. Can you define and, that? Because I think um, oh, yeah, sure. this is a piece of, of the Canadian landscape yeah, right. that I think sometimes gets missed is that there's right. no road, there's lot, many no road access communities. Yeah. Yeah. Most of them have, so to be a fly-in community means that you might have access in the winter on a road. It would be an ice road. But for the part of the year when the ice isn't thick enough to get a vehicle up there, you are isolated except for the little planes that come in. And the social issues in these communities are, are stunning and tragic. Um, they vie for, for titles like the suicide capital of the world. This is in Canada. There's two communities between Winnipeg and Thunder Bay where they're not sure which community is the suicide capital of the world, but they know it's one of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is just heartbreaking. So I'm flying home. Um, and I'm, these, these communities are just on my heart. And I, I prayed a pretty audacious prayer. I said, Lord, if you're going to break my heart to this extent, you've got 
to find a way for us to get up there. And uh, God had been working in our congregation in a few ways to have, I mean, you, to get into a flying community, you have to fly in, right? So I'm, I'm praying for an airplane at that point, but I'm just not saying the words because of, you know, pastors don't usually want to talk about airplanes. <laughs> so I come Creflo, home. Just Creflo Dollar, but. Yeah, exactly. I thought we we'll don't probably, name names. We're going to edit that out. Yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> so I, uh, I come back to our church and uh, I feel like we, we need to start praying about an airplane. And there's this recently retired businessman in our church who's, uh, it's actually kind of funny, Jason, because for 20 years, I've tried to get him off the bench of mm. like, come and serve. Like you got a lot to give and there's just nothing there. Um, so I start praying that when I meet him, cause I know he's got his pilot's license and he's retired, that maybe there's something there. God had been working in his heart to want to have significance in retirement to, uh, to start thinking about using an airplane for things. So I went and met with him and I thought it was going to be like a two hour kind of hint, draw out, remember what life's about, you know, eternal significance, et cetera, et cetera. And it was like five minutes of, Oh, we are exactly on the same page here. So then you have an airplane, what are you going to do with it? Uh, Because what I didn't want to do and what wasn't on our heart was to go and do one-off soccer camps or basketball camps or that kind of thing where you, you create a, an afternoon of distraction, maybe, but leave a place no better off than, than you found it. And then you're navigating also the difficulties of a predominantly white church coming up, imagining it's going to do some good in these communities. So there's that confusion. Mm-hmm. But there's also a storyline developing through COVID that ends up informing what we're going to do with the airplane. A friend of mine who's a local Dakota elder is not into Jesus at all. Took a while for him to even come into the building. Uh, We rekindle our friendship from when we were kids because I grew up here. And uh, his wife has uh, kidney issues and he wants prayer for her. Thought this was intriguing. We're actually at a place where I say, um, let's call him CJ. CJ, you know, I only pray to Jesus. Like, are you okay with that? Your prayers are powerful. Um, Let's pray. So he came, we're praying for, for CJ. And after these prayers, he says that he's a singer in his community and he can't keep up with the demand. So there's a community about an hour from Portage of the Prairie where there was 30 suicides over COVID. Um, the community's only, I think it's about 2,500 people, 3,000 wow. people. It's heartbreaking. And so, so you kind of imagine the scenario where his phone goes off. Somebody yeah. says, I'm really depressed. I'm in a bad spot. Can you come? And we're imagining like David, Saul, right? So David yeah. comes, plays for Saul, lifts the spirit. So he would come sing a song of blessing or hope or gratitude in the Dakota language and help that person through it. It's the kind of thing that you or I might do if we just, uh, put a song on Spotify or something, right? You can kind of do it for yourself, so to speak, be reminded of truth and identity and the power of God, that kind of thing. But none of these songs are recorded. Hmm. So after our prayer time, he confesses that he's been spying on us a little bit during COVID. He's like, I see you're getting a little bit better at the production side of things, the uh, recording side of things. I'm like, yeah, it's still like a low budget TV show that we work really hard. To but produce. we all got a little better. We got, we a, little got a little better. better. <laughs> and Honestly, like, we all need to go back and watch the first ones. No, no. I tried it's, to be funny on my first oh, one. Oh, no. 
No, like yeah, no, it was it was an absolute fail. I was talking about Caesar, and uh, I'm talking about Caesar, and I got this panel, and I mean in retrospect, it doesn't even make sense when I tell you I had our associate pastor pretending he didn't understand what Caesar was, so like these lame sight gags where he's pulling yeah. out like salad. You mean like this? Like, no, we, there was a, it was a hard time, man. Don't be yeah. so hard on yourself. <laughs> We're processing like, the information. We're trying to reach through the camera and impact <laughs> lives. And sometimes, yeah. yeah. And nothing does it like jokes, like a, a, a Caesar, <laughs> like with the salary stock and the salt around the room. That really goes well when you're, anyway. So, so he notices that we're doing better with it, right? My friend CJ. And he asks if we might be able to train some of his nephews on the reserve to record these songs. Then they're at least available for people. Like, absolutely. If these, uh, easiest way to train them is if they come in on a Thursday night and help us record our service, if they're willing to do that. So it was actually kind of cool because our prayers to have been one-third Indigenous here in our church for years. We've never been anywhere close except for a few glorious Thursday nights in COVID when there was 18 people in the building and six of them were Indigenous. It was, it was a, sort of a strange little answer to prayer. So we teach these guys to record. Our, we're hanging out. It's a great night. It's, it's reconciliation in, in action. Hmm. And then, uh, then we get the idea that maybe these songs ought to be recorded everywhere. Hmm. And we start to imagine about going up north. And then it comes together for me. I'm like, okay, that's what the airplane's for. And as soon as I started talking with CJ about that, it started to take off. And then the unmarked grave story um, broke. And everybody was suddenly going, okay, what do we, how do we actually do this? And the genius, because I'm I'm sure it was Jesus's idea, the genius of this recording project is the reparation aspect of it that a culture was that was destroyed in Jesus's name, so to speak, is now being preserved in Jesus's name. Hmm. I was talking with CJ when, uh, so, so I, I, sorry, at that stage, I'm like, okay, we have our idea. We have our, our, uh, our vision. We just need to buy an airplane. Middle of COVID, we have a capital campaign to buy an airplane, except three people get wind of what we're doing and they buy the plane ahead of time. Hmm. So we had a capital campaign so our congregation wouldn't miss out. And we made it for a buck, which was like so gratifying as a pastor because you have the thermostat, right, going up. Yeah, and yeah. You only need a dollar, it shatters it. Uh, but it let, it let all the kids be involved. And I'm sitting with CJ because we are a week into the, might be a while, CJ, before we get this airplane. We're a week in and we have the money for it. Wow. And he's looking at me like rich white people. I'm like, no, no, I've tried to do a lot of fundraising and it doesn't work like this all the time. And uh, he said, what do you think the difference is? I said, I think Jesus is sick to death of his reputation being tarnished with your brothers and your sisters, your nieces and your nephews. He's simply had enough and he's about to show everybody how magnificent and beautiful he really is. CJ didn't say anything. Um, but I believe that's what's happening because I have never seen in 20 years of ministry, so many doors open. Mm. Every time I turn around, we're being invited somewhere. There's now potential for basketball connections, mountain bike connections. Um, just had lunch with an elder yesterday. Uh, the Lord just keeps, keeps 
building momentum for this in a way that I haven't been a part of in, in history, wow. uh, my own history. It's beautiful. I really appreciate you taking the time to share it. It's, um, yeah. it's cool when you follow a thread and you're like, I think mm-hmm. this is a God thread, you know? Yeah. And then, but it leads you somewhere you wouldn't have designed yourself. And then it does right. stuff that you couldn't have like, you just can't contrive yeah. those outcomes. Like real relationship, yeah. real trust building, yeah. real honoring. Oh, it's, it's, it's amazing. I love hearing that. Yeah, I had to, I believe the Lord had to have me here for about 14 years uh, without an agenda, hanging out with indigenous people before the dam broke, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's something in the longevity there, the sort of incubating in one spot, just trying to be faithful mm. before this, this stuff happens. Like I got to go to a send dance a couple summers ago. It was actually a ceremony that the Dakota, I think other nations have it, that was outlawed in the States for lots of years. In the Sundance, the, there's a tree that's identified in, in the woods by the elders as having special spiritual qualities. And so the young men in the community go and they fell the tree and it's not allowed to touch the ground. The young men in the community put the tree on their shoulders and they take it up to the top of the hill. And then the community lifts the tree up and they plant it. The elders pray for it. And then they hang their sin on it, the things that they wish were different on the tree. And then the young men um, pierce themselves for the good of their community. In in, in what visually is quite barbaric. Um, I didn't get to see that. Then the young men fast for five days and they ask creator five questions. Who am I supposed to be for the world? Who am I supposed to be for my community? Who am I supposed to be for my family? Who am I supposed to be just like between you and me? So, so you sit in that, you sit in that with humility and you just watch Jesus show up all over the place. And then you can say, in my tradition, we have something really similar where a young man carried a tree up on a hill for the sins of all of us once and for all. He was Mm. pierced. Um, how does your story speak to my story? What can we what can we learn from each other? That happens over and over and over uh, when you go without without fear because you know Jesus is already there and He's going to show up. Hmm. Last thing I love to chat with you about is um, the vision to have hubs. You mentioned yeah. like in different parts of church called campuses or sites and there's a little distinction hubs um, outposts in different communities and i think a lot about how can we do church sustainably and incarnationally in Mm. different cities across canada especially as they get smaller and smaller more towns and rural you you mentioned the demographics are different yeah you know uh, the size of the towns are different what are the different expressions of um prairie alliance in as you go from one site to another Sure, I'll start. I'll start east to west, and this is another thing that's intriguing. Uh, we're really spread out, so our farthest campus is east of us in Dryden, Ontario. I think that's about four hundred kilometers away. Okay, real drive. Yeah. Real drive. Yeah, yeah. You don't do the morning service at mm-hmm. the uh, the second mm-hmm. service. That one. The uh, and that's really new. That's just getting off the ground now. We've got a campus pastor there. That was actually quite an amazing provision uh, from the Lord. She's a military chaplain who had to do her internship somewhere. She was interning here in our church in Portage. 
every time we talked about Dryden as a possibility, she felt the Holy Spirit say, you need to wow. go there. And so uh, the beautiful thing is um, our tax dollars are covering her first couple of years of salary because it's her military chaplaincy. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. We'll have to figure out what we do in two years when she gets sure. you know, sent, sent overseas or something, but quite a provision now. So that's Dryden. Then there's our main campus in Port of the Prairie. And then if you go up Highway 16, about an hour, you get to the town of Nipua. Nipua is about 5,000 people. It's grown from three to five because wow. of Filipino immigration in the last 10 years. Hmm. There's a large hog processing facility there that uh, brings over a lot of people from the Philippines. Creates a very interesting dynamic that our church tries to speak into where it's the young men that come over often before their families. There's about two and a half years before a family can join them. So you've got a young guy in his 20s uh, away from home for two years, um, often not seeing his family at all. Hmm. That, uh, that reconnection with the family, that trying to trying to follow the Lord in that interim period can be pretty difficult. So yeah. it's, it's for our church to be there. And then the next campus is another hour and a half north of that in Dauphin, Manitoba. And that's just getting underway. That town's about 9,000. Triton's 9,000, Dauphin's 9,000, Portage is 13,000, Nipah is about five. Oh, I love it, man. What I love hearing about it is there's so many different expressions of the church across Canada. Like one of my favorite things doing this podcast is just discovering, you and I are new friends. Like we just connected for the first time this summer. Um, one of our team members, Josh was like, there's this amazing story happening through Prayer Alliance. And you brought up a few times and it's just, it's so strengthening for me. I think part of it this is maybe something I've said a bunch of times, but I feel more emboldened to be a pastor here in Vancouver. Cool. Hearing you talk about being a pastor in your context. You know, <laughs> there's different contexts, but that same instinct to go, how can we see this a better place to live for all? And how can we honor God in our place with the unique gifts and abilities and stories and callings? And so thanks for sharing with us today. Um, and um, we just look forward to hearing more about how God uses these unique expressions and uh, appreciate so much your time. Well, thanks, Jason. Thanks, Nathan, for taking the time to share with us. Your work in and beyond towns like Portage La Prairie is a real inspiration to us all, and we're so encouraged by what Jesus is doing through you and through Prairie Alliance. If you didn't know, Nathan also has a book that he wrote to help build faith in the lives of new Jesus followers. It's called The Upside Down Life. And in a fun and clever way, it provides three core beliefs and six core practices for those seeking to embrace the upside down life that Jesus invites them into. You can find the link to it in the show notes for this episode. Now, I wanna thank a few people who helped shape this episode. Thank you to Josh Thompson for arranging and organizing the conversation and Daniel Rowe for your technical support. A big thank you to Anne Miranda for helping host the call, Jason for facilitating the interview and to Will Lee for producing this episode. Our team loves being able to serve you through this podcast, through our gatherings, learning communities and other resources. Now, what you might not know is that though we have incredible partner organizations like Compassion, who we'll hear more from in a moment, a lot of what we do at CCLN is only possible because of individuals like you and churches who have decided to partner with us in our mission to come alongside pastors in Canada. So we want to invite you to be a part of our work to strengthen pastors in Canada. 
If you want to give individually, you can do that at ccln.ca slash give. Or if you're a lead pastor, you can consider having your church join as a partner church. You can find out more about what that means at ccln.ca slash church partners. The good news is that whatever your donation may be between now and December 31st, your gift will be matched up to $50,000. We are so thankful for what the Lord has done in the lives of pastors this past year through CCLN, and we hope through your generosity we can serve even more pastors in 2023. Thanks for considering partnering with us. Now, before you say goodbye, here's the team at Compassion Canada to close us off and share more on the incredible work they are doing to bring hope and fight poverty. In Jesus' name. Have you ever wondered what happens to those kids who were sponsored through the Ministry of Compassion Canada once they grow up? I know that I did. My name is Mike Peninga, and I'm the Director of Partnership Development at Compassion Canada. Prior to serving at Compassion, I was a pastor for 18 years at two churches in British Columbia. I've sponsored kids personally, invited many others to do the same, and hoped that one day I would get to see the impact of that investment. And that's why I'm excited for you to meet Eric. Eric is an adult now who lives in Ottawa, Ontario, but he grew up in Uganda in extreme poverty, made only worse by the loss of his dad when Eric was just eight years old. I have sat with Eric and heard how Compassion's ministry through the local church and in partnership with a sponsor who twice came to visit him, brought hope and opportunity in the midst of very difficult circumstances. How magical that moment was when I knew that I have a sponsor now. It changed everything, literally. My name is Eric. I'm born in a family of eight children, four boys, four girls. My father died when I was eight years. And the time my father died, it changed the whole story. The relatives from his ancestral home came and took away all the wealth. At the time, we were barely left with nothing. Life was never the same at that point. It meant uh, not having access to better health, not having access to good education. We so much wanted to be at school, but we never had an opportunity. That was all gone. An uncle who worked with Compassion as a volunteer, he got in contact with my elder sister. Uh, they worked alongside with my mom to have us registered in a Compassion program. There was this big ray of hope, Compassion coming in. When I knew that I have a sponsor now, this was another highlight to me, like uh, getting a sponsor, it changed everything, literally. I'm worth, I have a life, I'm loved. I'd just finished university. She came and surprised me. Is there anyone who would desire to come and like take care of you? Is there anyone? Who would be thinking about you? From the other end of the world, you receive news that someone is coming in. Actually, Eric, we have a message from Dorothy, and we'd love to share it today. Hi, Eric. It is so good to be able to send you a message today. 
I had no idea the impact my sponsorship would have. And it's just been amazing to see how far you've come since I first started sponsoring you when you were eight. I am so proud of you and I've definitely gained a friend for life. Keep in touch. Every time I think of Dorothy, I, I just see a person who changed the world, who saw a desert and believed that there is water. It can turn into a big tree. It can turn into a forest. Sponsoring a child with compassion is giving an opportunity to live. It's more than just picking a name. It's more than just sending the little money, writing letters. It's more of giving a life and making that life worth living and very meaningful. Eric's story is definitely inspiring, and you can watch it and other alumni stories at Compassion.ca. Right now, more than 85,000 Canadians sponsor 105,000 kids, just like Eric, in 27 countries around the world. I am convinced that we have an opportunity and a responsibility to make kingdom investments that really do change eternities. As a church leader, you have influence that I pray you will steward wisely. Why not join Compassion as together we seek to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. If you resonate with a ministry that is Christ-centered, child-focused, and church-based, we would love to partner with you in seeing that move forward around the world. You can begin by getting in touch with my team by going to compassion.ca church.